morning, everybody. It's good to be with you again this morning. Um, we are this morning. We are uh, looking at the method of worship as we think about the singing of praises in the context of the local church. Uh, of course, again, we we realize that worship is all of life. Romans twelve one: Present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your uh, reasonable um, worship. Uh, it only makes sense. It's, only, it's the only right response to the mercies of God is to offer your whole life as a perpetual act of worship. We understand that. But uh, in the context of the local church, when we gather, what are we doing? How do we do it? Uh, that's the focus uh, of this series. And so far, we've looked at um, the essence of worship, which is kind of answering the the what, right? What is worship? And then we also um, we also looked at um, the priority of worship, and that was more focused on the who. So we're worshiping God; He's the ultimate purpose uh, and priority, and uh, we are also uh, edifying one another. And then the purpose of worship. The why, why do we worship? We looked at that last week. And so today we're looking at, you could say, the how. The how of worship, which is the method of worship. And uh, there's just so much to look at in this uh, specific area of, of the doctrine of worship in the church that we're going to take two weeks to, to go through this. And uh, this morning, we want to start with uh, the fact that God cares how we worship. God cares how we worship. That's uh, number one on your notes. So what I want to prove to you and show you through Scripture is that God indeed does care how you worship. There is worship that He accepts, and there is worship that He rejects, even in the life of the Christian uh, because uh, we are bound by the Word of God uh, for how we are to worship, and God cares deeply about how we do that. Uh, and there are essentially, there's, there's two camps. Uh, there's two um, pr- uh, main ways of thinking about worship, and they're divided up into the regulative principle and the normative principle. The regulative principle and the normative principle. So, First, uh, this is just to kind of lay the groundwork. You know, there's no quiz at the end of this for, for knowing the definitions, but um, it's at least good to be familiar with these things, especially if you start doing any reading on worship. It, this is something that you're going to come across often. So the regulative principle states uh, essentially that the only things we should do in public worship are those that find clear examples in or, or direct prescription in the New Testament. To say it a different way, the church is only free to follow the commands of God. And everything else, essentially, is prohibited. Or, to say it a different way, everything that a church includes in Sunday's order of service must have scriptural warrant. Everything that we do on a Sunday must uh, be warranted uh, by Scripture. 
And that is either commanded or uh, inferred that it is a high priority in the life of the church. Uh, That is, we are only to do things in church if Scripture gives clear warrant to do so. So that's a regulative principle. And the the word regulative is the idea that God regulates uh, his worship. He he regulates worship. He he, uh, uh, sets up the parameters for us and tells us uh, what and who and how and why. He gives us all of that information, all of those directives, and then that's what we carry out each Sunday when we gather. The other side of this um, is the normative principle. The normative, so regulative or normative. Normative principle essentially means that if God has not forbidden to do something in worship, then we're permitted to do it. So it's a little bit more, you could say, loose uh, in a sense, where, you know, uh, as long as I'm not going against Scripture, uh, as long as we're not doing something that God says, don't do that, uh, like don't, you know, sacrifice to false idols or don't, uh, you know, bow down to uh, a man, as long as you don't do those things that God says, don't do that, uh, then you are free to kind of fill in the gaps and do uh, things that you think might be helpful for you to worship God. Another way to put this is, you know, where the Bible neither commands nor forbids, the church is free to order its liturgical life or its worship life as it pleases. Or uh, you could say it like this, uh, that the normative principle makes space in the order of our service It makes space in the order of service for practices that are not forbidden in Scripture. So we can fill in, again, we can fill in the gaps, as it were. We can do things during our worship time uh, as long as it's not forbidden in the Bible. You know, it's the idea that you are allowed to do things in church as long as Scripture doesn't forbid them. All right, any questions about the regulative principle or the normative principle before I go on? Because we're, we're just going to kind of leave that to the side, and then we're going to show uh, where we stand as a church, where I stand personally, and, uh, and where I believe Scripture is uh, directing us uh, as a people of God. So there's regulative or normative. Regulative, God regulates worship. Normative is, the reason we have the word normative is basically there's norms or there's patterns or there's models. But there, you know, but, and that's kind of what we follow. It's a more general, just the norms of scripture, you know, the heart of worship, you know, that is orderly and, and different things like that. And we see different ideas throughout scripture. And so we can pull those and put them into a Sunday worship. You know, whatever's the norm in scripture, whatever's the model or, or the, um, the things that you see there as normative, you can adopt those. That's where the word comes from. All right. Well, whichever side that you fall on, and um, I trust that you would think through these things, and, and the, 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 the reality is that you can't keep either of them perfectly. Um, but uh, whichever side that you know, somebody would fall on, I would hope that that person would admit, at the very least, that God does care how we worship. 
that he doesn't just simply leave it up for our man-made ideas, but that he tells us how we are to worship him. So I want to start with Cain and Abel. Right from the very beginning of Scripture, we see that God cares how he is to be worshipped. So Cain and Abel tells us that the story of Cain and Abel shows us that God has strict expectations when it comes to worship. I want to read through the passage. Uh, Genesis uh, 4, verse 3 through 8, the story of Cain and Abel, the bulk of it, the the main meat of of the story here. It says, uh, excuse me, it says this, So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. So we have Cain, and he brings an offering to God, and it's the offering that he brings is you know, the produce of the field, you know, grains and fruits and things along that, that line. Abel, on his part, now here's his brother, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So you can already see there's a difference between Cain and Abel, right? Cain brings the, 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 the grain and, and the produce of the field, and then Abel brings uh, sacrifices of uh, dead animals, where obviously the animals had to be killed, and he brings um, the meat portions as well as the fat portions of those animals. And we see uh, what God does in response to both. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering. That is, he looked upon it with favor. And then verse 5, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. He did not look upon it with favor. The idea is that God accepted Abel's offering and he did not accept Cain's offering. And so here we see the response of Cain. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? It's obvious that you're upset. Cain, what's wrong? And he reasons with them. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door. And his desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain's response was to continue on in his anger to the point of murder. In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed them, killed him. So we see here that uh, there's a difference in the two offerings, right? As we just read, uh, Cain brings his offering from the field, and Abel brings his offering of uh, animal and, and the fat portions of animals. Uh, with Abel, there was blood and there was sacrifice of a life. With Cain, there was not. There is surely work to be done and effort on Cain's part to bring God an offering of the field, but it was very different from Abel's. Their offerings to God were very different. And uh, the, the only difference in this passage that we're given is the difference of what was offered. Uh, scholars, you know, there, there's debate uh, over exactly what was the difference. 
Um, you know, some would say, well, you know, it seems to be probably a motivation of the heart. Maybe Cain's attitude towards God was not the way that it should be. And he didn't come to God reverently or something along those lines. And uh, his heart wasn't in the worship. And that's why God didn't receive that worship. But we don't really see that come across uh, from, uh, from Cain until after. So it's, it's possible but that that attitude of anger and resentment and that sinful heart where it comes from, that was already there. It's, 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 it's logical to, to assume that was already there, uh, even when Cain did bring his offering to God. But the text just uh, only gives us the, the main difference is in what was sacrificed. So uh, assuming the best, we can at least say, well, both offered sacrifices to God. Both had the intent it seems, uh, to worship God. Both uh, relate to God in such a way that he is worthy of their sacrifice, worthy of an offering of praise and of worship. And, but from there, it, they deviate from each other, where one is you know, the, the sacrifice of animals and the other sacrifice of the crop we can at least narrow down the exact difference to two things. One is that motivation of the heart. It is the heart attitude of Cain versus Abel. We can assume that, again, because of the way that we see Cain's attitude come out as soon as God confronts him. But we can also, and I would say even with a little bit more certainty, because we have a little bit more light on this, we can also uh, deduct from this or, or, or conclude from this passage that the other difference was not just in motivation or heart, but in standard, in the standard of what was given. That is, that God it seems, did give Cain and Abel a standard by which they are to sacrifice. And we can go back to you know, Genesis uh, 3 and show that uh, there is the first sacrifice made by God. He, God kills uh, animals and he uses the skins of those animals to clothe Adam and Eve. And so we can see there seems to be some sort of standard, some sort of expectation of how somebody comes to God and has a relationship with Him. It is through a sacrifice of a life of an animal. It's through blood. And that carries on through the rest of the Old Testament. So it seems like Cain failed to worship in, in at least... Worshiping God in truth, but probably also in spirit. If you remember back to our previous weeks of John 4, uh, where, or excuse me, uh, yeah, where, where Christ uh, approaches the Samaritan woman and says, uh, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. We spent a whole week looking at that. 
It seems here right, right from the very beginning of the story of creation and the story of humanity, from the very beginning, opening chapters of the, the Bible, we see that principle uh, here already when it comes to worship. That Cain, uh, he did not worship God. He did not make a, an offering to God in spirit or in truth, meaning that he probably didn't have the right motivation, the right heart set towards God, and that showed through in uh, not worshiping God in truth. That is not worshiping God the way he told him to worship him. We see this principle uh, come again in the Old Testament in the commandments. In the commandments, specifically uh, the first two commandments, commandment one and commandment two. Let me uh, read that for us from Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 through 6, has the first and second commandment. It says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. There's commandment one. And then commandment two, verse four. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commands. So God here in Exodus 20 He reveals himself, remember, at Mount Sinai to his people. He reveals himself to them. And uh, he says, this is who I am. I am Yahweh your God, and this is what I've done. I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's the foundation of our relationship. And foundation of... How we worship God is who God is and what he's done. So who God is, I am Yahweh your God, and what he has done, I have saved you, essentially. I have redeemed you out of Egypt. Now, that's why we worship. But how do we worship? Well, he says, first of all, worship only me. Why? Well, because... I am God, and there is no other, and I saved you, and nobody else has, and nobody else can. And then he goes on to give us another layer of how we worship him, how we relate to him in a life of worship, how, and it gives us a template for our corporate worship. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any, or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So God says, essentially here in the second command, uh, I tell you what I'm like. You don't imagine what I'm like. You go to my self-revelation. And for us as New Testament believers and for the people of God throughout history, God's self-revelation, how he communicates or reveals himself, is in the pages of Scripture. And here in these first two commands, 
we're given the principle that God's self-revelation must govern, must control our knowledge of God. We don't get to think of God like a carved animal, whether it's from the heavens above or the earth beneath or the water under the earth. We don't get to, to fashion a God and, 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 and carve out a God out of uh, wood or stone or any metal and say, I think God's like that. God said, no, no, you can't do that. You worship me and you know me by how I reveal myself to you uh, through the prophets and through the scriptures, through the word of God. So God's self-revelation, scripture, must govern, must control our knowledge of God, what we know about God. We don't get to have just, uh, you know, uh, vagrant... uh, um, ideas about God, what he would be like, what I would like for him to be like. Now, follow me with this. If Scripture must govern our knowledge of God, then it follows that Scripture must also govern our worship of him. Because Scripture governs how we, what we know about God so also Scripture governs how we relate to God. They're one and the same. You can't make a God of your own idea and your own creativity, and you cannot worship God with your own creativity and whatever comes to mind. And this is because our worship of God flows from our knowledge of Him. Colossians 3.16, right? Uh, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, right? So the knowledge of God, the truth of God, saturates the heart and the mind and the soul of the believer, and then we worship. That's the rest of the verse. And so our worship of God flows from our knowledge of him. That's clear throughout Scripture. And so it's, it's, it, they come hand in hand. Of course, we go to Scripture to know about God. Then it, and if our knowledge produces worship, then obviously, if it, if Scripture governs what we know about God, then then it it doesn't just leave the picture when I decide to worship Him. In the same way, and I think this is what God is getting at here in this passage, just as. Our understanding and knowledge of God produces worship. Uh, as created beings, as human beings, the flip side of that is also true, can also be true. Our knowledge of God, what we know about God, can be shaped by how we worship Him. Follow with me here. If we come here on a Sunday morning and um, it's, there's, there's no plan for the service and we just kind of do what we feel like doing. I feel like I have a word from God, so I'll just stand up and give that word. I feel like singing this song, so we'll just let's, let's go ahead and sing that song. I feel like uh, reading and preaching from this passage, so you know, I'll just open up and read it and say a few thoughts. I, I feel like this, I feel like that. And, uh, and it's not governed by any sort of leadership. And so every, everybody and everybody can just, you know, input and 
you know, uh, uh, steer, as it were, the, the, the worship service. And somebody can stand up and say, well, I have a word from the Lord. And, okay, let's go with that. And then somebody else can pray. Oh, well, let's go with that. And I want to sing the song. Okay, let's go with that. And it's just all over the place. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, if somebody comes into a service like that, and in the context there, especially if there's in that age tongues and nobody's interpreting and there's all these foreign languages just going all around the place. and I mean, you can imagine somebody's over here singing in English, somebody over there is singing in Spanish, somebody back there is singing in Tagalog, somebody... Uh, you know, uh, at the door is singing in, in Mandarin. It would be chaotic, wouldn't it? That's why in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, well, God is a God of order. And if an unbeliever comes in, what are they going to think about your God? By your conduct, you're going to communicate God is a God of chaos. And Paul says, no, he's not. He's a God of order. And so you must do things orderly and for the purpose of edification in 1 Corinthians 14. So just as our understanding of God produces worship, so also are we susceptible to the reality that how we worship can shape, if we're not careful, can shape our understanding of God himself. That's why God says, when you worship me, you don't worship with an idol or through an idol. Because as you relate to that idol, you will begin to think of me in accordance with that created thing. And he says, that will never suffice. That will never be good enough because I am not created. I am the creator of all. And I am spirit. And you, no matter how elaborate and beautiful a sculpture or a painting or anything might be, the tendency of our fallen humanity is to relate to God by that object or by that form of worship. And that's why he says, only worship me the way I reveal myself. And only worship me how I tell you to worship me. That's why he forbids uh, idols and graven images. And we see the seriousness of this in the warning of God, right? Uh, verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity. That's, what he, that's how he views it. It's sin. It's iniquity. And I will not forget that iniquity quickly. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. It's, there's a generational consequence. This isn't saying that God is going to punish the sons for the sins of the father. He clearly says in Scripture that he doesn't do that. What he is saying is, if you worship me the wrong way, then your children will learn from that, and their children will learn from them, and their children will, will learn from them. To the third and fourth generations, uh, the, the, the predominance will be a people that are not worshiping me the way I prescribed, and I will not accept 
their worship. And that's, that, that is a weighty thing. So we got to make sure and get this right, right? Um, a couple more, just to show uh, God's seriousness. And I don't, I don't even know if I'm going to get to the second point. Again, this is a two-part uh, kind of lesson. There's so much to say about this that I just don't want to rush. And so we, we may or may not get to the second point, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how time allows. Uh, third, Nadab and Abihu is another example for uh, the seriousness of, uh, uh, of God's um, posture towards how he is worshipped. It's another vivid example of God cares how we worship him. And this is a well-known text, whole books, especially from John MacArthur, uh, entitled Strange Fire, uh, was written based off of this, uh, the, the truths in this passage. So let's read this. Uh, can somebody please read uh, Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 for me? Thank you, brother. So again, this is a well-known uh, passage. And uh, if you want to get a deep dive into this passage and everything that's there, you can uh, find John MacArthur's book, Strange Fire. And it deals with this and he connects uh, the sacrifice, uh, the offering of Nadab and Abihu, the strange fire that they offered to God. He, he connects that to today's uh, uh, charismatic movement uh, and the way that they uh, say you are to worship God or you're allowed to worship God. He says they're doing essentially the same thing that Nadab and Abihu did. They are worshiping God in a way that he has not prescribed. So Nadab and Abihu, right, the sons of Aaron, the rightful heirs of um, priesthood, if anybody should be offering sacrifices, it's them as the sons of Aaron. And they took their fire pans, they put fire in them, and they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before Yahweh. The, the, the point there is uh, in Leviticus and in Exodus, God had prescribed exactly what incense to offer before him, what portions and, and, and you could say recipes or, or however you want to call it, uh, what types of incense and when and how to do that. And they just, it, it seems here, they just went off the cuff and they just said, well, it's incense, right? Incense is incense, right? And, uh, you know, I'm, we're, we're doing our job. We're, we're offering sacrifices to God. And... Uh, but it was strange. That, that is, it was foreign. It was uh, something that was outside, that is outside of that which God had commanded, right? And, and that's what the text says in verse 1. 
uh, it says, it connects to the idea of strange fire, uh, which, which he had not commanded them. So the strangeness, the outsideness, that's not a word, I know. But uh, the, the uh, strangeness of what they did was that it was outside of what God had commanded. That's the strangeness of it. God didn't command this, so why are you doing this? You can kind of see, remember our regulative normative principles? We can see where Scripture is leading us here. Because the normative principle would say, well, as long as God doesn't forbid it, then we can. But that's what Nadab and Abihu did. Right? God didn't forbid them from you know, using the mixture of incense or the type of incense that they used. He simply commanded what they are to use. You see the difference? He didn't say, well, you know, use... He didn't say, don't use, you know, 50% frankincense and 50%, I don't know, turmeric. I don't know, whatever, right? He didn't say, don't have this mixture. He simply said, have this mixture. And the strangeness is they didn't do exactly what God said. Not they did what he forbade. So... What's, how serious is this to God? Well, it's, it's, it's serious enough to warrant death. It was a sin, right? The wages of sin is death. They sinned when they did not worship God the way he said to worship him. Fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. And they didn't die for a personal preference. They died because they sinned, especially before the presence of God as priests of Israel. And this is, what, this is God's explanation uh, through Moses. Moses said to Aaron, it is what Yahweh spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. That's the issue. Nadab and Abihu didn't treat God the way they should have treated God. They didn't treat him as holy. How do we know that? Well, they just worshipped him how they felt like worshipping him. They offered what they felt like offering, whatever it was, whatever the motivation was, whether it was convenient, whether it was you know, just too expensive to go get the other uh, 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 incense, or whether it was you know, they didn't feel like walking across the courtyard to get the incense that they needed, or whether they liked, they preferred that smell than the other ones, or whatever. Whatever the motivation was, something was more holy, something was more important than God in that moment. And so they decided, well, we'll just do it our way. And notice that not only does he care about their heart mindset before God in their worship, also he cares about this because this reflects upon his glory in the sight of God's people. And he says, and before all the people, I will be glorified. If I just let this go, then you will think of me in this way where, you know, I'm just a kind grandpa. And I just, you know, I, I ignored those little offenses and I'm just happy that you're here. God says, I don't want my people to think of me that way. I am loving and I'm a, I'm a, 
I'm a kind and good father, but I'm also the creator of the universe, and I am perfect and holy. And my people must not forget that. And I will be glorified, even if, even if it costs the life of my priests. Notice how zealous God is for his own glory. He's willing to kill somebody. He's willing to kill two people, sons of Aaron, the high priest. He's willing to kill them in order to maintain his glory. We need to approach God with the same reverence and with the same uh, awe and, and ho- treating him as holy when we worship the Lord every Sunday. One more. One more example in Scripture is New Testament, Jesus' teachings. Jesus' teachings, and especially his teaching towards the Pharisees. Because this was a bone of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. He, uh, they worshipped and did tradition. They worshipped according to the ideas and fabrications of man. And Jesus constantly attacked that mentality. One example is in Matthew 15, verse 1 through 9. Matthew 15, verse 1 through 9. It says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Notice their focus. The tradition of the elders. Verse 3. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, well, before we read verse 4, notice Jesus' uh, uh, focus. I'm not worried about breaking the traditions of men. I'm worrying about transgressing the commandment of God. That needs to be your focus, not your tradition. And he says, here's how. Uh, For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, so that's the command of God, but here's your tradition. You say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever you might benefit from me is given to God, Corbin, uh, he, he need not honor his father. And by this, in so doing, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So you see again, the word of God, tradition. Right? God's revelation, man's ideas. And he goes on. Verse 7. You hypocrites rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. And here's the focus. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Now, Sometimes the popular interpretation of this passage, especially when we get to verse 8 and 9, is that, you know, these Pharisees, they were old fuddy-duddies, right? They were old, you know, crusty old traditionalists, and they were too strict. You know, they were too, you know, focused on getting things just right. And, And Jesus comes and blows it out of the water and says, it's all about the heart. 
It's all about, you know, your heart and, and what you feel when you, when you worship. You just, just have your heart near to Jesus, and, and that's really what Jesus cares about. But the context says something different. And I would say, I would argue that that interpretation is just half of what's happening here. It's important, but it's not the whole picture. Because what was Jesus' rebuke uh, to the Pharisees in the verse previous? What was wrong with what they were doing? Yeah, and not what? The commands of God. So Jesus' rebuke, and it climaxes in this in these two verses. Jesus' rebuke is, you're not being strict enough. You see? You're not being strict enough. You're starting with the Bible, but then you're adding what you want and what you think. And then you live by what essentially is man's own creativity and man's own thoughts. And he lands it here in this passage, in, in these two verses. This people honors me with their lips, right? So they're on the outside, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're jumping through the hoops, but their heart is far away from me. Well, how do I know? How do we know that their heart is far away? That's unseen. Can only God see that? Well, that heart that is far away from God shows up in how we worship. Verse 9, in vain do they worship me. So, again, this vanity is parallel to honoring God with lips alone and not hearts. Remember, vanity is the idea of a fake facade. It's the idea of a mask or a, uh, a, a front that is presented where behind it is just empty. Like the buildings at Universal Studios, right? It's just, you know, cardboard and plywood front, but there's no building. It's just a front. It's, it's their vein. That's the, that's the picture. And that's what he says. You're honoring with me with your lips on the outside. You're doing the right thing, but your heart is empty. That's vain worship. How do we see that? In the last part of verse 9. Teaching as doctrines the commands of men. How do we see the vain worship? How do we see uh, the kind of worship that God doesn't accept in the lives of the Pharisees, they obeyed the doctrines of men rather than the commands of God. They lived and worshipped God by their own idea and their own expectations, and they ignored what God commands. And so they, what ends up happening in that situation, you obey somebody, and what you end up obeying is man rather than God. See? They added to Scripture with the teachings, the ideas, the thoughts of men. And Jesus here in this passage calls them back to true heart worship that is rightly controlled by the Word of God. 
So heart worship, genuine worship, is the kind of worship that is regulated by Scripture. And that's why Jesus says, those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Worship with your inner man and worship the way I tell you to worship. And so we uh, adopt and we practice the regulative principle in this church. Again, nobody's going to do that perfectly because uh, you can take this to the extreme and it's impossible to uphold. Uh, The ultimate, um, if you want to be a pure regulative principle kind of person where I only do what God commands me to do, then then you need to show up with... uh, a harp and a lyre and, uh, you know, horns and tambourines and a goat every Sunday. So we need to, of course, leave room for the new covenant and, and the gospel and, and things like this. So the regulative principle. as it, it, There's a helpful way it's stated in the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith here says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so it's limited by his own revealed will. So you see the limitations? We're going to go on next week to say, okay, well, we have to do these things, but there's ways we can do these things where there's freedom. All right? So it's not cookie cutter. If there's just fences uh, in, in the realm of worship, and we, we have freedom within those fences. But nonetheless, we maintain that the acceptable way, acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will. Why? That he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan. That's sobering, right? Because that's if we... Go with just the normative principle, and as long as God doesn't prohibit it, then it's free reign. Then you leave room for imaginations of men, devices of men, and even suggestions of Satan. You can leave room for the culture to to shape the church rather than the other way around. And lastly, in in this section of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12.1 is... um, Let me let it flow from uh, the first phrase, first, the, the second slide. That he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and the vices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation. So remember the second command, under any visible representation, any idol, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So... Uh, God tells us not to have an image, right? So we shouldn't, we, that's why we don't have images in the sanctuary. Because our tendency will be to focus on the image and worship the image or relate to God through the image. And he says, no, you relate to me through the truth of the word, my revealed word of God. That's how you relate to me. That's, that's your connection point is Christ in the word of God. All right. We went through a lot, didn't we? Uh, I just want to leave this open maybe the last handful of minutes here before we 
You know, next week we'll go on to God uh, commands how we worship next week, and we'll look at all of the, the ways that God says, do this when you gather, okay? So we've established God cares how we worship. He takes it very seriously. He expects us to worship only the way that he prescribes us to worship. There is freedom within the, those realms, but, uh, the, the, but we are not free to worship however we feel like or, or have an idea. Um, and next week we're going to go through, okay, how does God prescribe for us to worship him? And uh, you can see on the rest of your notes, it's all there anyways. Uh, but we'll go through that next week. All right, any questions? about regulative principle, normative principle, any of these passages that we looked at, or maybe any thoughts or, or questions about, well, how does this translate into our Sunday services? Anything like that? Yes? What kind of goat did you say we need to do? <laughs> <laughs> Billy goat. Yeah, as long as it's an unblemished Billy goat. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's often the struggle that people have, especially as new covenant believers. Is I thought that um, when we come to Jesus, he sets us free. And I thought the beauty of the new covenant was I don't have to have a goat every time I approach the Lord. And, and I'm not so regulated as it was in the Old Testament. And that's why, you know, in other denominations and other churches, um, this principle is uh, pushed against because there is this uh, there is this good tension of we're, but we're free in Christ, and uh, all of life is worship, and uh, you know, I, I can worship God m- many different ways and forms in my own private life. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I can do anything to work as an act of worship to God, can't I? While those are all true, uh, when it comes to, well, even if we say that all of life is worship and I can worship God in anything I do, that's not the full truth, right? Because the reality is <clears throat> you can't worship God by sinning, Right? So even in our Christian life, even in the freedom that we have in Christ, you're not free to sin, are you? Absolutely not. You're not free to, <clears throat> to do unwise things even. You're not free to get as close as you can to temptation and sin. God says flee from immorality, right? So you're not free to linger near immorality. Uh, and plenty of other principles, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and commands of Scripture, you're not free to just live any old way you want. And this, you know, goes back to the Old Testament. How when, when, when God saved Israel from Egypt out of slavery, where did they go uh, after he, he rescued them? Where did they go? Where did they end up? The wilderness. And where was the goal? Where were they headed? Where was God saying the promised land. Yeah. And what were they to do there once they get to the promised land? What was the promise of, I'm going to save you, and what are we going to do? 
we're going to go worship God, right? And then you have Leviticus, which is, okay, this is how you worship me, right? You're, you're going you're gonna to leave one master and you're going to be saved, but you're going to be placed under another master, and that is God. So even our idea of salvation is, is, needs to be um, controlled by Scripture in that I'm not saved so that I can worship any way I want. I am saved to be a, uh, uh, a slave of Christ. And I am sla- uh, saved to worship Him how He prescribes. And I mean, Paul says this, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. We're not just making our own kingdom out here. It's Christ's kingdom, right? And he rules a kingdom. A king rules over a kingdom and calls the shots. And so even our idea of salvation uh, is related to this. We're saved to worship, but we're saved to worship how God tells us to worship him. And so far from, you know, these critics who would say, well, that's so restrictive. The, the reality, what, what would you say to Israel when they're, you know, at Mount Sinai and worshiping God? That's so restrictive. Don't you want to go back? And if they're thinking right, they would say, no, this is freedom. This is what I was made for. This is true life. I'm actually free, though I am uh, under the reign of God. Because I'm free to live the way I was made to live, free to worship Him. So you see, it's, it's, uh, it's actually the regulative principle. There's actually great freedom in that. And uh, again, we're going to get into, even within this regulative principle, even within, like, here's the borders, here's the boundaries, there's great freedom within that. Like, one of the things is, uh, well, you need to sing Scripture. Well, it, we have freedom to not only sing the psalms, but the hymns and spiritual songs and different kinds of songs, different tones, different lyrics. There's all kinds of freedom, different instrumentation. So there's, there's much freedom even within that. Maybe one more question, and then we'll close if there is. Yeah, the question is, are there different expectations for the Christian's private worship or personal worship versus corporate worship? Um, yes and no. Uh, yeah, uh, as I said, you know, even as the, the private uh, believer goes and lives his or her own life before the Lord, there is freedom in what you do. But all must be done for the glory of God. And so there's restriction there and there's commands, as I mentioned already. Um, but as with everything, uh, when it comes to the corporate church, I mean, just look at the New Testament. There is a framework for that, especially in First Timothy. And even as we've been going through this series in our uh, preaching hour on the marks of a healthy church, we're told what to do as a church. And uh, there's, there's not much wiggle room. And so, yeah, it is kind of a different realm because there needs to be order uh, and uh, you need to have, you know, there's elder, uh, there's elders over the 
church, and there's, as we're going to see, specific expectations of what happens, right? So, for example, the church gathered, we're commanded to, to preach the word of God. You're not commanded to listen to a sermon Monday to Saturday. It's a good idea, but God doesn't command you. You got to listen to a sermon every day, right? So that's kind of the difference. You're supposed to be in the word. You're supposed to be meditating on the word, studying the word of God on your own. Those things are commanded, but there's a specific things we must do when we gather specifically preach the word. That's just one example. Does that help? Yeah. Good. Good question. All right. Well, next week we'll get into the details and uh, hopefully we'll see you back here and uh, work through some of these things and put some flesh on the bones. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that directs us. Thank you for revealing yourself in scripture and thank you for giving us a pathway, uh, parameters of how we are to worship you. I pray, Lord, as a church, that we will be faithful to your word, that, and even in, in this next hour, that our hearts would be right with you, and that we would worship you, and that it would be an acceptable offering of praise to you. And, I, and thank you that even uh, the deficiencies of our worship, even those are covered by the blood of Christ and made acceptable in your sight, because you're so kind and merciful, Lord, and you relate to us through him. And so, Lord, help us to worship in this next hour. Help us to honor you and give you the praise that you deserve. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.